welcome back to the Pedestrian Podcast, the podcast that you read about on Seahawks.com. Once majority of myself, Stuart Court, is a man who apparently has a rival in the catering game emerging with Marshawn Lynch's recent social media activity. Mr. Adam Lynch, how, Adam Nathan even, how are we doing, hey, sir? That was good, Adam Lynch, that'd be good. I think we've got Carlos Dunlaps in the food game. DK Metcalf, I think, has got some chefing background to him as well, I think, and now Beast yeah. Mode, so... The four of us could make a pretty... We need a goalkeeper, then we've got a half-decent five-a-side team. <laughs> oh, I mean, DK's, what, 6'4"? That's true, yeah. Like, stick, him, stick him in goal, for sure. Yeah. Uh, now, over this off-season, we've been joined by quite a selection of elite uh, guests. We'll continue that here. We've had Mr. Tatupu, Mr. Wright, Miss Rust, Mr. 2021. And this week from NBC Sports Northwest, it's Mr. Joe... Or as early this week on social media, we found out Reverend Joe Fan. In fact, welcome to back to Reverend the Joe, baby. Yep, I love it. I appreciate <laughs> you guys having me back. Yeah. So, where where's the Reverend come from? I'm officiating a wedding this weekend, and it seems like you guys can, because my aunt has officiated a wedding in Seattle before, and it does feel like you can just sign up and do it. It takes all of four seconds to put your name into it, put your name, hit submit. It shows you the certificate with your name on it and says, all right, now you got to pay $30 and then you're good. And that's it. There's no process. Everyone's like, oh, are you ordained? Like, what's that like? What's the process? Like, there is no process. They, anybody, literally anybody can be ordained. That's insane. Is it that, is a little bit is, insane. Is but Reverend Joe's sounds here? cool. So yeah. it's gonna is be that good. a thing over here? I don't think. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. So we're we going with Reverend, Rev, Big Rev. Have we got like a, a moniker that we're going to go on with this one? I think I just think I like Reverend Joe. Yes. You can call me Rev if you want. You can call me Rev. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. It's like, it's, it all sounds good until you screw it up. And so hopefully, hopefully <laughs> the bride and groom aren't regretting their decision on Saturday evening. <laughs> so before, quickly before we get to the meat of the pod, the thing that I want to run by you, uh, you've watched Ted Lasso, haven't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Okay. Big fan. Okay, one of your Seahawks beat cohorts, John Boyle, who obviously covers the team for Seahawks.com, he told me a few weeks ago after the Doug Baldwin pod that I sound like Nate the Great. So... I don't hear it, but these, yeah. So, like, like you kind uh, of do sound like uh, now uh, I hear it. I hear it. I still need to watch this. I can't get my Apple TV to work, and then I'll be the deciding, uh, the deciding vote. I hear it. 100%. I hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You don't look like him. No, no, no. Uh, no, 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 no. But I hear it. I absolutely hear it. I have a fun story for you guys, actually, before we get into talking about whatever you guys want to talk about. (laughs) One of your recent guests, Doug Baldwin. uh, So he's in my men's league, basketball league. Uh And uh, we're all, we all just restarted. We all still have to wear masks. Super annoying, but it's better than nothing. So we're playing for the first time in a year. And our second game after the restart, we're playing. My team's pretty good. Um, I am very limited athletically, but can shoot. And we've got a lot of size and some guys who are real players. Um, and I just like stand on three point line, shoot open jump shots. Um, and we're playing and I'm like, man, that guy looks exactly like Doug Baldwin. And if he's got a mask on, he don't break. No, for sure. And I was like, man, he's short, but he's big. 
And when he's, he's talking to his teammates, like he's got such a distinct voice. Like you hear Doug, he's kind of got that cool guy, Doug yeah. voice. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? And I was like, that's Doug Baldwin. So sure enough, like, you know, afterwards I went and, you know, said hi, whatever. And he's, he's, he's still super athletic, but not much of a jumper from him. He has this like shoot off one foot, Dirk Nowitzki type, like fade away on everything. Um, and so I gave him a hard time about that after the, after the game, but yeah, Doug Baldwin, we played him, played him in hoops and we, we beat him. We played him twice now, actually, and beat him both times. Nice. So I, all... I did think that story was going to end by you saying, look, I heard you on the pedestrian That's what I thought. podcast, really great interview, but okay, no, it's not, but you can say that for the third one. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things like I have met Doug a couple of times, but like a long time ago. And like, he wouldn't, wouldn't know me. I didn't want to be, you know, I was just like, Hey dude, you good? Good to see you. Whatever. And I was like, where the, where the, the one foot jumper thing come from? That was the only question I asked. <laughs> so on that, sorry, students interject. Yeah. Obviously our, our mutual pal, Mike Dugar is insistent yeah. that five of you guys on the beat could take down a Seahawk select and, the face you're making for those that are listening is a very vociferous shaking of the head. I think most of us believe you, but Mike really believes in himself with this one. I'd love, I love, I love that he does. <laughs> we wouldn't get a single rebound. Like that's, <laughs> like that's the issue. There's no size on the media team. I am, I'm probably the tallest, but I play like I'm five, five as opposed to six, three. Um, I'm not getting, I'm not boxing out DK Metcalf and getting a single rebound. Like, there's just mm -hmm. no way. So it, it's one of those things like on a purely skill, purely skill level and like basketball ability, it probably is closer to on par than you would think. Like football players predominantly aren't that good at basketball, but size athletically, I mean, it's another stratosphere. So, um, yeah, I would, I would, I would not, I would not anticipate winning. But I do. I also like feel the need to like be like say that we have a chance because Mike has put so much faith in me, and yeah. Mike's seen me play, and I've seen Mike play, so he's at least seen it. But he's so confident, and like that confidence is partly emplaced in me that I feel like I need to also be like, yeah. I mean, you never know on the right day, any given Sunday you know, can make it happen. But in my head, I'm like, there's, there's no way. But for Mike, I'd be like, I'll, I'm willing to give it a shot and give it 110. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get to the uh, draft weekend in a bit, but obviously the off season has been quite a circus. We had Stacey Rost on a few weeks ago and she said that they went into it expecting the main storyline to be Schottenheimer's future. So that was canned and pegged away rather quickly and rather hastily. Uh, how's it gone down? from your point of view? Yeah, I think the off season has been successful. I mean, I think the rust stuff, the biggest thing with the rust stuff is it just like makes me so frustrated that like the media has become the like, how dare <laughs> the media do this? And like, I get that people get sick. There is, there is something to like, when things are quiet, you need something to talk about. And there is, we all know times where like you're watching whatever the show and one of the topics you're like, that's it. We're talking about that today. And, and the media certainly took it and ran with it, but they didn't create it. And that's just so confusing to me. And then even when Pete Carroll spoke before the draft and he started down the path of, it wasn't an us problem. It was a media problem. You know, like, 
Well, it is a you problem. You just said that you had conversations that needed to be had. You made a statement to Russ that we need to cut this out. You don't do things to the media, yada, yada, yada. Like just own that. Like there was a thing you had to deal with, whatever. Don't make it a media thing because then people hear that and say, yep, see, Pete's telling us the media's fault. The media's, you know, it's, it's just like, and you have others who have moved the goalposts on like what it means of like whether or not it's a big deal to where like it's gotten to the point now where some people are so like, it's the media's fault that unless you were to actually get traded, everything else is just a waste of time. And that's also confusing to me because, you know, I don't know. So um, the whole Russ saga is just, it's been a little bit wild in terms of the actual moves that have been made in the roster construction. I think for what little resources they've made, or they've had, I think they've made good decisions. I think the Jaron Reed contract dispute stings. Um, that's a bummer to, to not have him around. Um, when he, I don't, you know, foolishly bet on him getting self getting more as a free agent. Um, I love the Gerald Everett, the Kerry Hyder, the color Carlos Dunlap. Um, I like the flyer on Akella Witherspoon. Um, I like the Gabe Jackson trade. Pretty much everything they've done, I've I've felt like that makes sense. That's a good move. And I think the, the big thing of, you know, whenever I'm asked what's the biggest move and best move, it's, it's all comes down to me to Shane Waldron. Like if he's not the guy, I think everything else is immaterial. And if he is the guy, I do think he has the single most single greatest, single biggest opportunity to get this team over the hump and back to his championship game since 2014. So long winded answer, but overall, I mean, yeah, it's been an eventful off season, it's been very much a net positive, in my opinion, and that includes the draft this last weekend. Yeah. When it comes to Waldron, um, when Schottenheimer got fired, I think the general view amongst the, you know, Seahawks, I, th- I think across anyone that follows the team, fan or media, was, yeah, Brian Schottenheimer maybe didn't do the best job, but this is still Pete's offense. That you know, Pete still runs the show. He calls the shots. And it seemed like they had a falling out, which led to him leaving the team. That's at least what we gleaned from that. Because I think on the day before, he said, no one's going to get, you know, no one's going to get fired. I think he bit your head off for even suggesting that he might be fired. So it did very much seem like a Pete thing. In the last month or so, I'm hearing a lot more talk about Shane Waldron. And it, it seems it's naturally transcended towards where he, whereby he might have a bit more power and instruction over the offense than we initially thought. Has there been anything in that? Because in a way, I didn't expect to have the conversation three months ago that let's see what Shane Waldron does in this offense because I kind of thought he was just being brought in as another Pete Carroll shill. I, I do think that Pete Carroll is going to give him more latitude than maybe others have received from the jump. I think eventually Brian Schottenheimer had quite a bit of latitude, but probably not upon being hired. I think he probably had to work his way to it. Um you don't hire Shane Waldron and then like put the clamps on him and say, this is, you know, it's just at that point, you know, I guess technically you could argue that Brian Schottenheimer was one that left as opposed to being fired. I mean, they call it a mutually parting of ways. Um, but Shane Waldron is the hot shot with the pedigree learning from the best. I mean, you owe it to yourself to, to tap into everything that he knows and, and the ideas that he has. And, who knows how it's going to manifest itself in terms of in-game decisions, but in terms of implementation of the offense, I think Shane Waldron will absolutely have his fingerprints all over it as he should. It shouldn't need to be said, Mm -hmm. but like you mentioned, I think it does need to be said given who the head coach is and what the track record is. Um, And Tyler Lockett to me, everything Pete said last week, 
leading up to the draft and glowing praise of, of watching Shane kind of work with guys and, and starting to kind of implement things and go through his ideas and how he wants to, things to be. Um, Tyler Lockett was really excited about it. And he seemed, I mean, he basically said, everyone's going to have to put their egos, check their egos at the door, come in and be ready, pen and paper in hand and learn from this guy. And he said, coaches included. And I don't think that was by accident. And so um, that to me felt really significant to like, I'm excited. I, you know, I don't know what my role is going to be, but I'm excited to find out. And I'm excited to learn as much as possible from this guy as should everybody. And I think hopefully, you know, it's not, you know, he, he made the joke that it's been a three year cycle of Daryl Bevel, Brian Schottenheimer. He said, hopefully this is the guy that can last and be here for a while. And you hope that's the case. You hope he has staying power to where the reason why he leaves is because some team hired him to be head coach. Um, you know, and he's got all the weaponry at his disposal for that to happen. If a, he is the guy and is, you know, can, can live up to this Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay coaching tree hype and B uh, if Pete Carroll will let him run with it. And if those two things, if he's the guy and Pete lets him go, I don't see why the Seahawks offense can't be one of the best in football next year and for the foreseeable future. Uh, yeah. And the first pick in the draft this weekend with Dwayne Eskridge kind of supports that a bit, doesn't it? Because he doesn't feel like a Schottenheimer player. Obviously we've seen in LA with uh, Cooper Cook, Robert Woods and like Brandon Cooks, Josh Reynolds, Van Jefferson, that the three receivers is more of a, a, a detail in, uh, ingrained in that offense and how they run things. It really wasn't, it feels like the Schottenheimer or Pete Carroll's OC would be fine running with Freddie Swain and John Ursula, but Eskridge is, is draft stock of 56 and now in Seattle kind of supports that a bit more, doesn't it? I think so. Uh, just quick tangent. The fact that you told me John Boyle let you know that you saw that made the great <laughs> from Ted Lasso. I'm listening to you go on that soliloquy right there. I saw your eyes glaze over. Yeah, yeah. And no, I'm, I'm just, just like, used to seeing that though. I'm just like, I'm just listening and I'm like, it's all I can hear. I'm picturing <laughs> Nate the Great giving the speech in the locker room and being like, that's Stu. Oh my goodness. It's uncanny. I love the Eskridge pick. And I, I, I guess <laughs> I'm probably blinded a bit by, I, had a, I interviewed uh, for the Talking Seahawks podcast that I put out every week, uh, Tim Lester, uh, who's done a little media tour as, as all head coaches do in college when their players get picked. Um, and I loved listening to him just rave about Dwayne Eskridge, the player, the athlete, the build, um, all of it. And I mean, he, he mentioned – you know, I showed up Monday morning. All of our coaches are off this week. There's nobody in the building. Uh, I went to go work out in the weight room, and and who's in there but Dwayne Eskridge? Um, 48 hours after being drafted, um, or 72 hours after being drafted. Like that, that was really kind of a cool anecdote. His skill set's fascinating, and um, I think there's a real possibility the Rams wanted him the very next pick, and that's why they reached for Tutu Atwell. People think the Seahawks reached for Dwayne Eskridge. He's at least got a frame and a body looks like an NFL player, albeit he's short um, compared to Tutu Atwell, who might have maybe some of the same athletic traits, but but a very different prospect in my opinion. Um, I am really excited. I also loved hearing what Pete said about it. You know, we can get him the ball in a number of different ways, jet sweeps, hand him the football. Apparently 
they call him D. He's not so Dante Wayne. It's going to be D. Everyone calls him D. Pined Coach Lester to like give him the ball downfield. Like we're not let him run downfield. Like put him in the backfield, eye formation, give him the rock. I mean, he just wants the football in his hands. And everything you see and hear about him, this guy's electric, big play waiting to happen when you put him in space and you get the ball in his hands. And so um, he said that, uh, you know, that stint of being a two way player and playing corner. Um, helped him a ton, helped polish, polish his route tree to where he doesn't have to go at a hundred percent. And, you know, you can learn the timing and the patience and how, you know, if you go 90%, you can turn it 90 degrees and make that clean cut as opposed to having to go hundred miles an hour. And it's not as crisp. He, he couldn't have said, I mean, again, you take it with grains of salt, you know, who it's coming from. And this guy's not going to say a bad word, but I've done a lot of those interviews after the draft. And there are some that, you know, they, they give you the, what you need and what they, you know, great player, great person, going to work hard. And Tim Lester just, I mean, couldn't have been more effusive in his praise. And again, I think you look at a third receiver in the NFL as a starting position these days. And if you in the Seattle sorely lacked a go-to third option in the passing game last year, and if you can have a guy that, that truly makes defenses question whether or not they can double team Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf, you've got a player that is, is worthwhile. And the nice thing about it is like you draft him. And I also love, they drafted a corner. It's like you're drafting guys who can make an impact immediately. Mm-hmm. Wayne Eskridge, given his skill set and what his role could potentially be. And especially with Shane Waldron, potentially using him, you know, horizontally and getting him in space, all those sorts of things. He could be, he should be, should be able to beat out Freddie Swain. He should be able to get snaps in week one. And that's exciting when you only have three picks and two of them might play sooner rather than later. That's encouraging. Cause I think it's been so frustrating for Seahawks fans to hear the, we don't draft for need. We draft based on our board. It's like, all right, well, you drafted this position that there's a log jam. Now you don't need, you know, how shocking would anyone have been if they took a safety because there was one they loved and he fell and it's like, okay, well, great. You love this player who has no future of playing anytime soon because there's a log jam, five players deep at safety. You already had to move a second round pick from safety to nickel corner. So I think that was really encouraging. I know Michael Dugar wrote this about this a lot, but I mean, the, not just the players, but the process of, of getting there, um, you know, I think is tremendous. And I'm really excited to see what, what D Eskridge looks like immediately because we should get that opportunity. With Eskridge and Brown, unfortunately, the way in which my sporting life is wired, all I can think about is pain and the worst case scenario. So I always look at any team that I support and think if this is as bad as it could possibly be. So just go with me on this one. I look at the Seahawks roster and if things go as poorly as they could possibly go, I feel like the floor for this team is maybe lower than it's ever been since Russell Wilson has been quarterback. Cause there maybe are fewer star players. And like if Sherman, if the LB had their worst season possible, they could still be pretty good. Whereas this secondary, if it was as bad as it could possibly be, it could be pretty bad. However, that's not, I'm actually trying to make a positive point here because actually with the positivity and the moves they've made in the off season, I kind of feel like with the way Green Bay are flirting around with a bit of disarray, Tampa Bay, Father Time is undefeated and hopefully Tom Brady eventually will be caught up by that. This could be the Seahawks' best chance of getting to a Super Bowl since 2014 with the way the NFC is currently constructed. 
Yeah, am I picking up from there? Okay, yeah. I didn't know if that was like, I, I was waiting <laughs> for like, I didn't know if there was a but. I didn't know <laughs> no, there was like, no but. I don't think they're going to get there. No buts. That's it. Um, I think I think the swing on the, on the floor and the ceiling has never been never been bigger under Russell Wilson. Yes, I still I guess I, I maybe I agree with you that the floor is lower than in years past, but it's still f- very high relative to other teams just sure. because of Russ, um, mm-hmm. and so it's hard for me to really. I mean, what what's what's is what is the floor? It's probably worth figuring out. Seven and ten is that the floor? That that, that sounds awful, by the way. Yeah, seven, seven and ten. Let's just say let's just say seven and nine or six and ten, and we'll just allow an extra game in there somewhere. Let, <laughs> let's treat it as if that seventeenth game hasn't happened. But yeah, I think six and ten. Like I'm saying, I would probably even say eight and eight. I would probably even say eight and eight is the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking like if KJ Wright doesn't sign again, if Dunlap is 32 and plays like a 32 year old, and if the cornerbacks, no one really steps forward, there could be an issue defensively. Is what I'm thinking. Sure. I just think the offense has got too much firepower to be as disappointing as it was the second half of last year. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so, I mean, Shane Waldron would have to just flop remarkably for him not be able, I mean, he, what a beautiful, again, this is with the caveat of Pete Carroll letting him do his thing, but your first time offensive coordinator, you get <laughs> Russell Wilson, uh, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, a second round pick, and who you would have had a hand in scouting and, and saying, I like this guy, I want him, Chris Carson, and an offensive line that's got some issues, but in my it could be worse. Hmm. That's pretty dang good. So I, I guess, yes, I, I, in a roundabout way, do agree with you. I, I think given what's on the roster, if it all comes together, yeah. Uh, to me, I still think the Niners have the best roster in the NFC. Well, the Bucks are right there too because the Bucks are loaded. It's first-round picks across the board on like both sides of the football, it feels like. Um, the division's just so damn good. And like, you know, it's, it's going to be so hard to get anywhere near that first-round bye when you play six games against the Cardinals, Rams, and Niners. And so that's where my hesitation is um, because we've seen how important it is to get that bye. Now the Bucks were fine without it. To me, I, I guess where I, I guess yeah, I, mean, I don't agree with you because I do think the floor is just I mean it is is fairly just or is right around where it was last year and the ceiling. It's like I don't know what is it. What 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 happened this year, this off season that's going to get them over the hump that hasn't been able to happen since 2014. I guess I'm maybe I'll send that back to you of like what did change with their ceiling. What move was made this off season to where you feel the way you do about their ceiling. I think I feel more that the other teams around the league, I, like I don't feel there's as many buzz saws that you would have to go through the playoffs in the NFC to win. Like last year, I feel like I never thought we could beat Green Bay. I never thought we could beat Tampa Bay, kind of either home or away. I just felt that we would be outmatched. And I just get the feeling that there's no one there that could necessarily go into a game that is definitely going to be better than you. You could argue every team in the division is better than you. For sure, we've, we've, we've made the argument, but I feel like it's not as... We can have the discussion about whether they are, whereas I feel last year there wasn't a discussion whether Green Bay and Tampa Bay were better than Seattle. Got it. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, that's what's so hard about this team is like we we could, you know, we're going to talk this whole offseason until we're blue in the face about what we think might happen. And they're going to be, whether they win the division, they're, you know, they they probably aren't going to get the first round by. I just can't envision an NFC West team mm. getting it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then it just comes down to they get in the first round of the playoffs and it's going to be hard to have anyone sell themselves on anything happening differently than what's happened, you know, the last, again, since 2014. So this team's impossibly hard to project because you just, I don't know, I'm not giving you any good analysis right now. I'm like trying <laughs> to pick up on this ceiling and I'm trying to sell myself on like, yeah, everyone else is worse and they're so much better. I still think they're a flawed team defensively. They're not going to be, I mean, they just need to be competent. Uh, I I think all my analysis comes back to Shane Waldron. Uh, My my mom and dad's right now and they have a landline, which I don't, that's not even a thing anymore. I don't know anyone else with a landline. Yeah. It just all, it all comes back to Shane Waldron. I mean, it is like if, if he is the guy, then yeah, I'm with you. The ceiling, you're right. Uh, This could be the year. Um, And I am very optimistic with him um because of who he's learned from and i think he brings what the seahawks did not have i don't the vertical passing game is not going anywhere chris carson's gonna be who chris carson is but if he can get russell wilson comfortable in a short and intermediate passing game that's on time and in rhythm and you get some silver platter throws that jared goff has feasted on for years in los angeles where it's one read boom guys wide open you you know before you even snap the football where you're going with it because it's just going to be there because we know how laborious everything felt the second half of last year. And if that can be alleviated, then yeah, I'm with you this year. Super Bowl, Let's do it. <laughs> but also, like I said on the pod uh, with Matty uh, last time, oh, that um, it kind of feels like Pete Carroll's going, look, you wanted all this. We've give you, you've got Tyler, you've got DK. We've give you, we've kept Carson around. You've still got the airline. We've invested in Gabe Jackson, um, we've invested in the second round pick. We've invested in the tight end. I'll sort the other side of the ball, but you have pretty much everything you can potentially need. Yeah, I agree. I don't have much to add to it. I think you said it perfectly. No. I think yeah. they are, they are, that offense is built. Shane Waldron, again, I think I just mentioned this. <laughs> if, Pete, if, it's, if you're right and Pete Carroll says, I'll worry about the defense, you get this thing back on track. And these are the things I want, the elements. I want the short passing game. I want to be able to run the football successfully. I want all these different things. You make it work. Here are all the pieces. I mean, it's hard to imagine a first-time offensive coordinator being given a better hand. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you look at the situation he walked into compared to, like, a Zach Taylor going to Cincinnati. And you're the head coach. You're trying to run that off, whatever. Like, Shane Waldron's in a far better spot. And so, again, it, as long as he feels really good about working with Russell Wilson, who's different than most – and so much of what he does is off script and, and hard to game plan for. Um, if you can, if you can make him a more scripted quarterback and get him comfortable in that situation, then yeah, there's no reason why this offense again shouldn't be one of the best in football, not just for the first half of the year, but for the whole thing. Well, okay. On the other side of the ball, I'm I'm fascinated by the the Trey Brown pick because um, so my number one. Uh, vivid experience or memory of being at an NFL game is Stuart and I were at MetLife Stadium a few years ago when the Seahawks beat the Giants and the Seahawks had the, had the ball on at the five-yard line right in front of us uh, and Jimmy Graham just split out wide and he was matched at 1v1 against a guy who was like five foot 11 and I just nudged Stuart and said just fucking throw it to him and it's going to be a touchdown and Wilson threw it to him and it was a touchdown and I'm fascinated about the process of them talking about Trey Brown as an outside corner, in addition to DJ Reed, probably with Shaq Griffin not being there, 
probably being penciled in for one of the two cornerback spots. And I'm really interested about the process of how all of a sudden the Seahawks feel they can just go out there with two cornerbacks that are five foot nine and five foot 10 and succeed. And obviously they do think that's a viable possibility or they wouldn't have invested one of the few picks they had on it. So has there been any insight into how that might work? Cause it just seems completely alien to me. I think Trey Brown was a guy they liked. I'm not sure he was their guy. I think they gambled a bit moving down in eight spots. Marco Wilson and Robert Rochelle both went off the board, both far more traditional in terms of, of prospects that you would think Seattle would covet. And then John Schneider mentioned we had an opportunity to trade down again from 138, and we decided it, it wasn't worth the risk, and we took Trey Brown. So my guess is there were the, kind of those three guys, and there's a significant gap, and they're, you know, whatever the next crop of cornerback prospects they felt were far more project-type players. Um, I don't think Trey Brown's a project player. I mean, he's, seen, he's gotten a lot of work in a Power 5 conference, playing on the outside against elite competition. Um, I think he's got starter caliber traits from an athletic standpoint. Yeah. It's just like, is this really the leaf that's turning in Seattle where they're going to potentially have two, five, 10 and under corners starting on the outside for him. It's amazing. The impact DJ Reed has had on the way they think, because not only did he open their mind to saying, okay, like maybe it, it can work, but he also showed them what it takes to do so, like what it takes to be successful as an undersized corner. And I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, like when you think Stu, Nate, the great DJ Reed, Trey Brown, same guys, <laughs> same guys. And everything you hear about Trey Brown is the exact same things we heard for a full season about DJ Reed. They're insanely competitive. They're very physical. They are not afraid of anybody. They are very confident in their own abilities. You know, for lack of a better phrase, they're guys that want all the smoke all the time. Um, and so I think the Seahawks saw that and said, we can make this work. If Akello is not the guy, if Trey flowers, just at this point, we accept he is who he is. Um, Trey flowers to me very well could be either taking a pay cut because he got a, a playing time bonus, automatic bonus, where his, his cap number is over 2 million. Now he could be a, a cap casualty if he's not the first or second guy on that job. I mean, if Trey Brown and Akella Witherspoon are higher on the, you know, the, the, the pecking order there, they might either ask him to take a pay cut or cut him and try to get him back. That's an aside, but yeah, I'm a believer in Trey Brown. Why not? I mean, DJ Reed was, was sensational last year and they might not be the, the most talented. It might not be both all pros, but, but I don't know. To me, you could do a lot worse than two guys who were super confident, athletic as hell, physical, going to be a pain in the butt, and a little bit, you know, irrationally, like, confident. I mean, every – DJ Reed hyping himself up every play. Like, you kind of like that swagger a little bit. I mean, you just – you don't get that from Trey Flowers and – you know, for a lot of Akella Witherspoon, from what I've seen from him, and I was in San Francisco when they, when they drafted him, you don't get that a lot from him either. I know him and DK went back and forth a bit last year, so maybe he's come around. I mean, his his big issue has been the mental game. I mean, he doesn't have the ability – he hasn't had the, been had the ability to stack games on top of each other. His his confidence is a roller coaster, and he was in Kyle Shanahan's doghouse every other week, which why is why he was benched so often. I mean, that Super Bowl run, Akella Witherspoon wasn't a part of it. Emmanuel Mosley was in that spot for him. So – to me, if I'm having to put money on it, I'd rather put my money on the, the, the fourth round pick who, you know, to me seems like tools 
all of them except for his height. So why not? Uh, one thing on Trey Brown and the Eskridge is the uh, senior bowl thing, which appears pretty real. Jim Nagy used to be with the team. I think he has a longer working relationship with Schneider. It does seem to get, as it's very on brand for Seals fans, a fair chunk of criticism that they just go to senior bowl and pick players from that pool. But I think there's a tweet earlier today that there's, I think it's a hundred of the players drafted over the weekend were senior bowl invitees. So is it a bit unfair on Schneider and Pete that they go the senior bowl route because there's 31 other teams doing it as well? Yeah, to me, it's, I think it's a little bit of a lazy criticism. It hasn't always worked, but it makes sense. I mean, those are guys you're getting a full week of practice playing against other really quality players. Um, I talked to Jim Nagy this week. I mean, like, look at a Stone Forsyth, who some people had a second-round grade on. He didn't get an invite to the senior bowl. He wasn't on their board. He wasn't high enough. I mean, these are premier prospects that are getting invited. It's not just anyone who wants to come to Mobile for a week, come kick it. I mean, it's absolutely the premier all-star game or showcase, if you will. Um, You know, Trey Brown, all of the wide receivers – at the senior bowl, this is a new thing this last year where each position group on each team votes for the player of the week on the position they go against. So all the receivers of the week voted Trey Brown as the defensive back of the week. And so that's pretty cool. Um, you know, so when you have, you get a game at the end of the week and you have three practices of the, you know, one-on-ones team drills, you know, you're interviewing them. I mean, that's a lot of access and a lot of ability to feel comfortable with a player. And so, you know, there's a reason why a hundred that, you know, those guys are all getting drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's an easy shot to take, especially given Nagy's history in Seattle, working for the team, his relationship with John Stanner and Pete Carroll, as well as some of the senior bull guys who haven't panned out. You know, they, they point to that as opposed to just a pick that failed. It's all oh, taking another senior bowl guys never works. It's like, well, I don't know if that argument carries a lot of water either. I mean, it shouldn't be, I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're not just saying our search is only limited to the senior bowl, <laughs> but to me, it makes sense why they would feel more comfortable with guys who are there. Yeah. Especially this year as well. That's a couple of years really with how truncated everything's been. Adam? Another question that I'm going to repeat that I've already asked someone, but I think it's uh, I think it's interesting, especially with your relationship with the person that I'm going to uh, bring up anyway. So, the first round of the NFL draft, I always feel is like a referendum on what teams think positions of need in general can be in the league. So, obviously, you've got exceptional players, and there's obviously teams that are dying for a certain position, and, and they might move up to draft a player like that. But it did strike me as almost ironic that the reason the Seahawks had no draft picks basically at all was a position that didn't get drafted in the first round at all. Now, there weren't any Jamal Adams to be drafted in the first round this year, so it's a bit of a reach to say that. But it did strike me that the safety position seems to be more and more undervalued, and yet the Seahawks seem to be pushing more and more chips into that basket. Uh, And I know you've got a bit of a relationship with uh, Mr. Jamal if we're going to go down the Mr. Joe route, and I just wonder how you see that all playing out with, with him and the team because it still feels on a bit more of a knife edge than I guess we would have hoped it would be this time last year or, or when he was draft, uh, picked. Yeah, I mean, I asked John Schneider point blank before the draft, I mean, do you still see him as a part of your plans? And he said, yes, absolutely. We're going to celebrate him in the first round and all that. So they still have to agree on a number. And, you know, Jamal Adams is listening to this conversation. He's saying, yeah, 
obviously, Adam, there aren't any safeties in the draft like me. And I'm not a safety. I'm a playmaker. I'm a football player. I'm a whatever. And he, you know, he's going to try to get paid more like a pass rusher than he is a safety. So he is kind of an interesting case because you could argue he's not really a safety. He is. And he, you know, so I don't know how it's going to play out. And every week that passes, it becomes a bigger and bigger storyline because I would put my year's salary that he's not going to attend a single practice um, under his fifth year option. You know, he might show up, he might pull the Bobby Wagner. Remember last training camp, Bobby showed up, but he was in sweats in his Jersey and just there with his teammates, but didn't, you know, and it was like, I think day two of camp, maybe it only took two practices for him to get um, two or three to get his, that, that new deal. And then he was, you know, back on the field and practicing. I don't think that would have happened even when the trade went down. I remember right when the trade went down, I don't think there was a chance Jamal Adams was going to play a snap on his fifth year option. Then he goes through a season where he goes through injuries for the first time. He's playing through broken fingers. He's got a torn labrum. He's got a groin injury that keeps him out for a quarter of the season. There was a, a, a an awakening for him. Like, okay, this, this career as good as I am can be pretty fleeting and you don't plan as, as hard as you work to avoid injuries. You know, it's, there's never a certainty of, of staying out of the training room and staying off of IR. So just, there's just no way he plays another season under market value, which means I don't know how it's going to end because they haven't gotten a deal done yet. And John Schneider didn't give any sort of hint as to if negotiations are happening, how they're going, um, whether or not, um, you know, they're close, whatever. Um, this, this feels like it's got holdout written all over it. Um, well, honestly, you talked about, well, we talked about it on uh, Mike and Chris's pod a few weeks ago. That that must be a fun thing to not live through. It sounds like you're in the wartime, but the whole Jamal Adams thing when he called you out. I think I was watching him when he called you out. I was like, "What's happened there?" And then obviously we explained it on. That must be a fun thing to maintain aspects of press conferences. That must be a fun thing to come out with so quickly as well with someone who only just got into town. Yeah, that was fascinating. Um, I mean, I've told the story a couple of times, but you know, when I asked that question, it was on a Friday before the before the Philly game, I think. And I was just like, "Hey, you know, how do you feel like you played in coverage?" And I just was expecting the canned response of, "You know, I feel like I'm doing well. It's called plays I want back. I'm feeling more comfortable every week, and you know, look forward to getting better." Cool. But like, you know, then you ask, like, it, it had been enough of a thing what people are talking about on social media you know, the PFF grades, you see yourself, like it feels like you'd missed some plays and left some plays out there. And so, um, and there are some very valid reasons why he wouldn't have been playing well. You, you know, I was, I wasn't hundred percent. I'm in a defense that I'm trying to learn and get comfortable with. I, they just traded two first round picks for me and I'm pressing a little bit because I want to live up to the hype of what that expense was all very legitimate, you know, some from an athlete standpoint, some from a human standpoint, whatever. And he, you know, he, he went, the he took an opportunity to speak to his haters through me. And I became a, I became a face and a figurehead for the Jets fans that are in his Twitter <laughs> mentions calling him Blitz boy. Um, we learned a lot about Jamal Adams in those couple of weeks, because there were a couple other instances in which, you know, he took an opportunity to take a question and then get something off of his chest. Uh, in that very same press conference on that Friday, Brady Henderson asked him, you know, what's your relationship like with Pete Carroll? How do you, do you enjoy working with him with no undertone? No, just like, I mean, just plain simple. Like, how do you, you know, what's your, you know, and he, Jamal thought he was taking a dig at 
the like little spat they got in on the sideline in Buffalo, not even spat, but like Buffalo or Jamal, I was all fired up and saying whatever. And he goes immediately into that. I didn't fight with Pete. Never yell. Wouldn't yell at Pete. Like everyone thinks I yelled at Pete. And everyone's like, "Whoa!" Like I know, you know, this wasn't. It wasn't even about that. But appreciate you addressing that. So he's very aware of what's being said about him, um, and in his Twitter mentions and all that. And I guess that you know, it's kind of the nature of. Um, I love, Michael Sean loves this anecdote when he he put on Twitter like, "I'll never forget." Uh, you know, the players drafted before me and like Marshawn Lattimore quote tweeted and was like, dude, it was like four people. <laughs> Why are you so angry about this? Oh, so, it was fun. Um, you know, I, a lot of people only call me Mr. Joe. Mike's one of those guys. Uh, I saw <laughs> the driving range today and I saw um, somebody that works for uh, Russell Wilson's production company, West to East. And he goes, what's up, Mr. Joe? And I was like, Daniel, what up, man? You know, so that's, you know, I like it. Uh, it, was, it was fun. It didn't bother me. Yeah. Even a bit. Uh, and I'm actually a pretty big Jamal Adams fan. Like, I feel like if we're on the spectrum of, like, terrible trade, hate Jamal Adams, we need to trade him now to, like, best trade ever, love Jamal. He's the best player in the league and the future of the team. I'm, like, more towards this side of, like, yeah. I do think it's – I don't think he's just a box safety. I don't mm-hmm. think he, you know, do they overpay. Yeah, probably a bit, but I do think he's more of a transcendent player than not. Um, you know, as opposed to some, you know, I remember I talked to Rob uh, Staten and uh, Staten, 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 Rob Staten. I should know he was on a podcast. When we talked for like an hour. That's bad of me. Sorry, Rob. And where Rob is very much like you give Marquise Blair, those reps, he'll get you nine and a half sacks. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite there. I don't want to trivialize the production of, of Jamal Adams because I do think he's a really, really good player. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, yeah, it all goes back to, I, I don't know how it's going to end because I, I can't imagine that the Seahawks are wanting to pay him like a pass rusher. The, uh, since kind of Sherman and Baldwin doing Harry Potter impressions and Mike Bennett on the podium, the last few years, I would say the, the press conferences in Seattle haven't really been as box office as, as they otherwise used to be but you have found yourself personally in a couple of like interesting positions with people. And I say that with the highest of praise, because I think in general, there is a perception that it's quite a soft beat and, you know, Pete especially gets away with quite a lot. Russell gets away, you know, Dan Patrick asked him a question, a follow-up question and he he completely shat himself because he hasn't (laughs) had one of those for 10 years. Um, Is it, but you have been kind of an invaluable person to listen to certainly for for us who are trying to you know work out what's going on because there's been stuff that's happening in response to the sort of bilge that's being spouted but it must be quite difficult to not try and be that guy which i'm sure you're not trying to be you're just trying to ask questions that are actually interesting for us to listen to whilst maintaining the relationships that are essential for your job yeah it is a delicate balance um it it is wild the whole like if you're asking a follow-up question is kind of taboo and i think you know pete carroll kind of expects like you to take what he gives you Mm -hmm. and pete carroll says people always ask me what do you have why do you like pete carroll what do you have against pete carroll it's like i love pete carroll great coach seems like an incredible human being i don't dislike pete carroll at all he just happens to say things in press conferences a lot that don't really make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> so I, I just doesn't bother me to like ask a follow-up. I don't go into press conferences thinking I'm going to be the tough guy. I'm going to be, you know, hard on them and ask a hard question for the sake of asking hard questions. Um, but because I have that reputation, I, I, I do kind of pick my spots where there are times where it's like, I'm curious about this. Cause this is like kind of silly, but like, does it really matter? Probably not. I'll save this for another day. I'll, I'll pick something else. You know, I'll, I'll pick my spots when I want to be like, Hey, 
this is weird or what you said this and it doesn't make sense or this isn't happening. Why? Or you just gave an answer that doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, I, it's also hard because it's not a, on these zoom calls, your follow-ups kind of have to come on your own question because with the zoom, they kind of go down the order where like, you know, I remember one where someone asked him about, um, against Tampa Bay two years ago, uh, in 2020, 2019, um, he used a challenge like on an unwinnable challenge to lose their last time out in regulation when they had to go score a game tying touchdown to send it to overtime. Um, and someone was like, what about that challenge? He's like, well, you know, I knew they weren't going to overturn it, but I was making the point. So I clearly followed up. I was like, was it worth it to prove a point when you needed that time? I was like, well, we didn't end up needing it. Ha ha ha. And I was like, Ooh, that's kind of like a scary response of like, all right, whatever. But now it's, he said, what was he saying about Russ um, last week? And he, he kind of made, he was trying to go down this road of, you know, our players have to learn, you know, their words carry weight. And when you're a franchise quarterback and you say something, the media is going to take it and run with it as if like Russ is new to this, you know, <laughs> as if he wasn't one of the highest paid quarterbacks of all time. And um, you know, this superstar has, that has been a superstar for years and years. It's like, stop trying to play us like fools. Like, and I get what you're doing. I just, I, I have no problem writing that like, Hey, be careful this today. It didn't make any sense at all because of X, Y, and Z. So I don't know. I, I enjoy what I do. I don't, I don't really, I try not to have, I don't think people think I like have an ego about it of like, you're just trying to be a jerk to be a jerk and you don't like these people. And you're trying to play these like gotcha aha moments. And I don't know. I just try to do the job the best of my I would suggest yeah. I would suggest that anyone that thinks that is the same kind of person that thinks that the media created the Russell Wilson story, and I would say that those people aren't really worth bothering yourself too much about. Because uh, I heard a guy call Paul Gallant yesterday to say that, and he said that the entire Russell Wilson story and the entire Aaron Rodgers story didn't exist and was just a media manifestation in order to get people talking. And I mean, people like that are walking amongst us, and that that is the scariest of all the things. It's wild. And that's why you just say like, I'm going to do this how I think it should be done to where if anyone wants to call me on it, I can tell you, I can stand behind all of it. Mm-hmm. Every question, every story, every whatever. Um, and you know that there are people who are in on that and think you're great. And there's people who hate you and think you're terrible. And it's like, I can live with that knowing like, you know, when day, I've gotten some calls of like, Hey, why'd you write this story? And it's like, I wrote it because X, Y, and Z. And you can stand behind it makes it pretty easy to deal with people who disagree with you or think you're an idiot. Yeah, on, on last week's press, I think it was more the post one. I text Adam over WhatsApp saying, I think John Schneider read every syllable written about Russell Wilson over the last four months because he seemed, well, one, like he didn't want to be, he wanted to be anywhere else. But two, he seemed like extra sassy, extra bit short with a few of the questions that he was throwing. Did you pick up on that vibe from him? Yeah. And that's why like when Pete Carroll's like, it's no issue. It's no big deal. I brought up when like the, the four teams, you know, when that list got released, Adam Schefter and John Schneider's pretty quick and says, I have conversation with his agent. Those conversations are private. I hope you respect that. I was like, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there is a part of John Schneider who wants to trade Russell Wilson for the lone fact of never having to deal with Mark Rogers again. Like I, that part of him exists. I would put money on it. And of course he would never admit, he'd never be able to admit it. Maybe off the record over 13 beers, you know, in Bellevue, we're going out some <laughs> night and he'd be like, yeah, I can't stand that guy. But you know, I, I my guess is, and I've heard the great finds like I, I'm guessing there have been some 
very uncomfortable conversations between the two of them. And I'm sure that, that John Schneider, there's a part of him. It's like, let's just trade him. And then we never have to deal with Mark again. And how beautiful is that? Is it that bad? Do we really need him? <laughs> yeah, he's Russell Wilson, but yeah, that's, I, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. Sorry. The one where she spoke to Mike Rob. Mark Robinson uh, a few weeks ago, mm, you, you asked him if he still had a relationship, still spoke to his quarterback. He said no, pretty sharply. That seems to be a common, in some cases, unconfirmed thread. That's probably a lot that we can unpack in like the post-mortem of Russell Wilson in Seattle, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think he's just an interesting guy. I mean, he's such a PR machine um, you know, I don't think there are many people in his inner circle, like from people that, you know, I think, you know, like Robert Turbin, probably Bobby Wagner, um, and maybe some others, but like, I, I think he kind of keeps everybody at an arm's distance probably. And mm-hmm. he probably is a hard guy to, to reach and get a hold of and keep in touch with. And, um, you know, I, that wasn't a surprise at all to me of like, you know, probably there's a lot of guys who kind of feel like, um, you know, do we really know Russ? Like we obviously know between the sidelines, Russ, but like, you know, everything else is, I don't know who knows. Um, so I didn't think that was interesting. I didn't think it was surprising. Um, but everything Mike Rob said again, and that's just one side of it. And there'd be going to be people who, you know, also defend Russ endlessly. And, um, the, the reality of kind of where the fault lied and where the, the, um, validity in his complaints lied is probably somewhere in the middle, but, um, yeah, I just think he's just a really interesting cat and you've read the features I and mean, there was the article in the Rolling Stones, um, or Rolling Stone years ago that followed him around for a couple of weeks. And like, you know, when you see just how he's able to compartmentalize the different parts in his life to where like, that's not normal. Like people just can't do that. Like turn it on, turn it off this is done. Okay. I did this podcast. Boom. Didn't worry about it. Like, now I'm onto this, something totally different. I'm not even thinking about whatever else. And I, I truly think he's able to have that tunnel vision because I know this for certain he schedules his days. Maybe not when he's on like full vacation mode with his family during the season, he schedules every minute of his day from wake up to putting your head back on the pillow every day. There's an itinerary every single day prehab podcast practice meal family time this that the other all of it every day that's wild like it's hard to it's hard for i said saying normal people it's going to sound bad like we are i am not like russell will i can't relate to that at all i can't compartmentalize like a three putt on hole four when i'm golfing and i'm still thinking about it on hole 13 I am on the other end of the spectrum where I'm like the most mental midget of all mental midgets. He's clearly very much the opposite where he can do it to almost a savant degree. Um, but that makes you hard to relate to that. That does kind of make it to where I'm sure some of his social relationships are, are different than maybe most. I don't know. Um, that's not to say he's a bad person. Else, but does just to say what, what Mike Rob said is not super surprising. No. I would say that he comes across as objectively a good person. Anyone that, that wants to spend their time every Tuesday going to a children's hospital, for example, Agreed. there is a, you you must be at least a very good person to do that on the separate side to that. I feel like he's trying to manicure his brand to such a degree 
that he actually has no brand now. And the fact that he has a podcast that is I never listen to, would never even think about listening to. And he's the quarterback of my team who I would surely love to get an hour a week from. And he's not getting schmoes like me and Stuart on his podcast. He's getting like Ken Griffey Jr. and people of like huge importance. And I wouldn't even think to switch that podcast on ever. And it strikes me that he's spent so much time in the league trying to create this thing. By the time he's out the league, who's going to want to hear from him on anything? Because he's not super relatable. Again, it goes kind of back to whatever I was just explaining. Like everyone's favorite athletes are the ones that are relatable and they seem like, you know, a guy you could go and have a, a, a pint with and, and hang and, and, you know, whatever, where I've never seen. Do you not think image. he is though? Like what? in his, obviously what we see there it appears beyond robotic, but there must be something. Like I met him in his rookie year and he was delightful. I spoke to him for about 10, 15 minutes. He couldn't have been a nicer guy. So this is obviously something that's built up and, you know, he builds layers of protection. There must be something there. And I feel like he's wasting it by not showing us to it when he could. And when he's 40, no one's going to give a shit. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen after his playing days. I get what you're saying. I think it's super possible. I do think the podcast point is a great example or like he is Russell Wilson, best player in the history of the franchise, getting all these incredible guests. And yeah, no point am I like, I got to subscribe and make sure I'm listening to that the second it comes out. Um, it doesn't. Yeah. Been there. I, cause, I don't, Cause I just don't think there's going to be anything that comes out that's, that feels super real and human and um, off the cuff and fun and, you know, maybe off color a bit, you know, I think that's part of it too. Like we're all off color a bit. And when you have someone who's so not like not even a little bit and doesn't let himself go there at all, like it, again, it's, it's just not super relatable and he is a great guy. And if you were to meet him, you would love him because he would be, he would give you every, he would be lasered in on your interaction and he would be incredible. And he is incredible. I think he is an incredible human, his ability to compartmentalize and do all these different things and make it all work and not get burnt out and whatever that plus how just purely image conscious he is. I've never seen another athlete more image conscious than Russell Wilson. Um, those two things blend into a figure that is again, hard to relate to. And that is to me is what leads to, um, you know, the reason what you're talking about. And again, the, the podcast example you made, there's not a better one you can find because that's, does that podcast go viral? I, does it, I don't really. I, I, the only time I've ever known that he was doing it is because DK Metcalf interrupted him to give him his Madden 99 thing. Yeah. And that's the only I, a time I had any idea he even did one. His uh, his co-host is a comedian called Jeff Dye, who's a yeah. massive wrestling fan, and that's it. I, I would born it on the podcast. We spent I would spend eighty percent of my questions asking him for, for his wrestling takes rather than. <laughs> but but that is also. Have you big, listen to it? No, Have you listen. But, but you think like all of us. I mean, we're not journalists in any way, but we do you know an hour a week on, on this stuff. You'd think you might listen to it to pick up a nugget that you could talk about. Joe, you are a real person in this. Yeah. And the thing that like if it yeah you know, Ben Roethlisberger, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, if they spoke for an hour a week, you'd get something to spend fifteen minutes on talking about. I'm sure. You could argue it. It should be part of my weekly routine. Like that, I should be listening to it. <laughs> yeah, I just doesn't. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that to like take a shot at Russell Wilson because I know he puts a ton. He loves it, mm. genuinely loves it, and he, he gets amazing guests and all of that. 
Um, to me, it's just like, you can only listen to so many athletes talk about what makes them great. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. I think we want vulnerability. We don't necessarily want to be championed that. Yeah. We, we know how hard of a worker you are and you were the first one in the last one out. And like, that's incredible. It's awesome. Like I admire Russell Wilson's work ethic. I mean, I, I'm not him. I'm not, I can't do that. I don't have that in me. I don't have that mama mentality in me, not even close. So like, mm-hmm. I can respect it hundred percent. And it's not to talk down to it or roll your eyes at it. It's just one of those things. Like you've heard that story, you sort of heard them all to a degree. And which is why people love Charles Barkley. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you think about the complete opposite end of the spectrum. It's Chuck who is just an idiot. Like all of us who, you know, is just trying to figure it out and is largely faking it uh, and trying to, just as entertaining as all get out with, you know, Draymond Green, there's an authenticity to Draymond Green and guys like that, where people love that because it's refreshing. Um, and, you know, it makes them more polarizing and some people hate them, but polarizing all the same where, you know, you just don't get any of that with Russ. Yeah. So funny. You mentioned Charles Barkley. Cause I heard on, I think Dave Damashek's podcast with cousin Sal, he was saying that Michael Jordan has six rings and yet did like a 10 hour documentary where he never really smiled. He always looked angry. He was always looking for a reason to, you know, find something to piss him off to then go again. And Charles Barkley didn't win anything, but seemed like the happiest guy in the world. And it just says like so much that to be the elite of the elite of the elite, it's almost like you can't be happy doing it. Whereas just taking one step down, you can still be incredible and yeah. you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. I will add this as well. And again, I, I don't, this is just kind of the reality of it. Russ isn't a good storyteller either. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember there was a bit, a bit, a couple press conferences where he's kind of gone down this path of like, Oh my gosh, this is super funny. This one time. And like, <laughs> yeah, Oh, like I'm listening. Yeah. I all ears. I can't wait for where this goes. And every time like he gets through it and he's kind of laughing and it's just like a, I don't get it. Like what, what's the punchline? It was like, he was telling a story. My first training camp coming to team in 2019. He was talking about like being on a roller coaster at six Flags. He was like, it was so funny. We were doing this and whatever. And then like, whatever. And it was like, we were all like looking around, like, I don't get it. <laughs> so like, that's the other layer of it too. It's like, you know, and maybe he's because he holds himself back from like actual funny details that maybe he thinks will make him look bad or what. I don't know. Um, but like, he's not a particularly, he's well-spoken, but he's not a great story. He's not a guy who is going to hold court at a party and make everyone laugh yeah. via story time, you know, yeah. with a way, again, the Chuck is mm-hmm. the ultimate because he's going to be telling golfing stories, this guy and that guy. And, you know, Phil Mickelson, I mean, great example. The guy who just is witty and, and hits you with the one-liners and all of that. Um, that kind of charisma is one thing. Maybe wit is, is part of, you know, not a great storyteller and maybe not super witty as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, and I'm not, I don't know why we got down this path and how we got down this path. <laughs> it's great. Fourth of May, we've got nothing else to talk about. Come on, let's do this stuff. This is great. It's worth having a conversation to figure out why it is the way it is. Like, why don't we listen to Russell Wilson's podcast every week? Like, that's something that we should be dying to do because of yeah. Russell freaking Wilson and Ken Griffey Jr. Are you kidding me? But you know what? Also, Ken Griffey Jr. is not mm-hmm. super. Like, Ken Griffey Jr. is 
very much the same way. Like Ken Griffey Jr. is not a super engaging speaker. Ken Griffey Jr. is a is an icon because of the style in which he played and the flair. And I would argue Russell Wilson's is very much the same. Those two guys actually have some similarity there where like it's the smile and the charisma, but not necessarily the, the personality, if that makes sense. Like I'm not listening to, I'm not, I wasn't even dying to listen to what Ken Griffey Jr. had to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause he, it's just, I don't know. I'm thinking about this in real time as, as I've never really thought about it this way before, but sorry, Stu, go ahead. It's okay. No, but on, on, on Griffey, like his legacy seems to be in Seattle. Obviously the baseball stadium is basically there because of him. Like his legacy seems to be uh, something which is far above any height Russell Wilson's is going to reach in Seattle because I don't know, just the whole vibe around Griffey, even now with the statue of the stadium just seems completely different. Yeah. I mean, Kerry Jr. was arguably the greatest player of an entire decade. Yeah. You're probably not going to make that argument for Russ, even though he's also a hall of famer. Um, there was such a coolness to Griffey, the backwards hat, the video games, the cleats, the, the, the necklaces, the, the swing. I mean, all of it was just so the, I mean, the flair was off the charts. So it is a little bit apples to oranges in that regard. I mean, anyone who, you know, can make be a baseball icon, especially as a, you know, an African-American, you know, all that. I mean, there's so many layers to Griffey's um, legend status where that just, it would be really hard for Russ to get there. Um, But I think Russ is definitely in the same conversation. Yeah, um, it's just different. A couple of quick fire ones to wrap because uh, so you can go and prepare before you get your Moira Rose on over the weekend, and um, also enjoy your dad's birthday, which you're joining yeah. us on, which we thoroughly appreciate. Uh, K- KJ and Sherm are still out there. Do you think either what either them or both of them will be back? Gut says no on Sherm, but I do think KJ is back. I just think with KJ, it's going to take some swallowing of his pride and. You know, I think it's it's a bummer for him when he says, I'm not going to take a hometown discount. I want to get paid market value. And the Seahawks, their offer's probably been there just in perpetuity. Just like, here it is. If you want to sign it, let us know. Yeah. And if he comes back and signs, I mean, there's, yeah, there's to swallow your pride a bit. And I feel bad for him because he had such a good year last year. And clearly his market hasn't materialized in the way he had hoped it would. Um so I think of the two, I would give KJ Wright 60%, Sherm 35%. Okay. And uh, what's your golf handicap? It's like 12, 12 and a half. That's I'm like better. anywhere from like 85 to 95. I can't get off the tee. I can't hit my driver worth a lick. So yesterday in England was the uh, rainiest day in six weeks, the coldest May bank holiday in like 30 years. And I decided it was a good day to go and play golf at 10 a.m. and got absolutely soaked, absolutely drenched. That I haven't looked. Miserable. I haven't looked at my scorecard because it was a lot. I, I hit so the 18th is an island green. I hit three tee shots to. I think I hit the same fish in the water. <laughs> yeah, that's consistency, though, Stu. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Drive for that. You can start playing. They just need to move the green about 30 yards to the left, and I'll be in. I I love on a sunny day. There's not a thing in the world I'd rather do than golf. And on a rainy, miserable day, there's not anything I'd rather do <laughs> less yeah. than, than golf because I just, I'm such a fair weather golfer. I, I am like, I'm the guy again, mental midget where it's like, Oh, the wind's whipping too much. Like, Oh, it's raining on me. My, my grips are wet. Wah, wah, wah. Like I complain <laughs> about all of it, but on a perfect day with your boys, beer in hand, it's not a better spot to be. As we did before, massively appreciate you jumping on with us two idiots. Um, I'll go and tell John Boyle the good news on Twitter 
as soon as we wrap up. Uh, where can people catch you all your socials and all your writings? Yeah, Joe underscore fan on Twitter. Uh, check out the Talking Seahawks podcast. Um, got a good one this week with uh, Trevor Sycama and, uh, and Jim Nagy, uh, Tim Lester coming soon. Uh, hopefully some other coaches interviews with um, from Florida for Stone Forsyth and Oklahoma for Trey Brown. Um, and then NBCSportsNorthwest.com for everything written. But yeah, I appreciate you guys. It's always fun to, to banter and talk ball. And this, is, uh, this has been uh, no different. So really appreciate you guys. Always good to connect. When you speak to Stone Forsyth, just quickly, obviously he did the Halloween thing where he looks exactly like The Rock, but no one's picked up the fact that his name is a big stone. Like a rock is a big stone he and he's massive. That. He told and he's us called that. Stone. He told okay. us that. Yeah. Because someone said, you know, was there a, like an origin story of the name Stone? And his, his, apparently his parents thought of like Stone, like The Rock. Like that was like a the foresight to like, name him the stone amazing. because there's you know that's amazing his birth that has been his destiny you got an image board dna that's amazing yeah yeah pretty uh, yeah. cool and yeah uh, joe believe that's all i got to finish on believe great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so this has been another episode of the pedestrian podcast till next time go hawks How did you ultimately decide on on the Seahawks? Well, just just the the, the overall vibe that I have with the team. Uh, it's it's the team that showed the, the most interest. Uh, I've spoken to scouts in Zoom meetings. Uh, I had a meeting with the offensive line coach, the three of them. So uh, Pete Carroll called me. Uh, so definitely, I had some some interest. It's the team that showed the most interest. So definitely, um, I was feeling a good vibe with them.